Well, today we're going to wrap up our sermon series through the book of Acts by focusing on how the Apostle Paul finished well. Because I hope you realize it's not how you start, but how you finish that matters most. Oh, it's easy to start stuff. Even the Christian life, much harder to finish and finish well. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 16. Acts chapter 28, verse 16. And when we came into Rome, look at me. We've been trying to get Paul to Rome since Acts 22, right? Basically, those final seven chapters, he's just being shuffled from one civil authority to the next, traveling by horseback, traveling by foot, traveling by ship, shipwreck. It's all been about getting him to Rome because he, as a Roman citizen, has appealed to Caesar. He has that right because the Jews want to kill him. And he says, I don't mind dying, but I shouldn't be killed for this. I should not die for what I've been saying. And so he just keeps appealing Finally, he's arrived in Rome. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed, this is Luke writing, his traveling companion, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Skip to verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense or in his own rented house. This was house arrest and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. With all boldness and without hindrance. Now that's the way Luke ends his letter. That's the way Luke ends telling us anything else about Paul. But this is not the end of Paul's life. To hear from Paul himself, I want you to jump over to... 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because Paul actually ended up getting released. This imprisonment did not lead to his death there at the end of the book of Acts. He was released. He did more ministry. He wrote three more books of the Bible. Now I want you to hear Paul's words himself in his last book and letter to Timothy at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4 beginning in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that Day, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Oh, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Look at me. Everybody doesn't finish well. When Paul wrote the letter to Colossae, book of Colossians, he talks about Demas being a, a co-worker and fellow laborer for the gospel. Demas does not finish well. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatians, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. 
and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. He wants his Old Testament scrolls. He's not done reading the Bible. He doesn't think he doesn't need to read it for himself anymore. Oh, above all, bring the parchments. Skip to verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Those are the final words that we have of Paul at the end of his life. Oh, listen to me. No one just drifts into finishing well. Drift is always away and problematic. No one just drifts into finishing well. If you want to finish well, if we want to finish well, you and I have to make dozens of daily decisions that will determine whether or not you finish well. It's not some big, big, huge thing. Right now, I want you to understand, right now you are in the midst of making decisions that might seem small, but you are making decisions and I am making decisions that are setting the course of my life, the trajectory, that are determining whether or not I finish well. It's happening now. Dozens of decisions. And some of those biggest decisions I think you see highlighted in Paul's final letter to young Timothy. If you want to finish well, and I hope you do, I do. If you want to finish well, here's the first thing, number one. You'll have to change what you think and feel about our greatest fear, death. That's got to change. It's got to change what you think and feel about our greatest fear, death. Look at how Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. You see, Paul does not expect to be released from prison this time. There'll be no miraculous deliverance. No angel will show up. Chains won't fall off. Gates aren't going to open on their own. We've seen some incredible stuff happen in the book of Acts. But Paul knows he's going to be executed this time. And yet it doesn't freak him out like it would some people. Who would begin to think about all that they wish they'd done. And how they wish they'd lived. And what they'd wish they'd been a part of. That's not Paul. Because Paul knows no one can take his life from him. It's already been spent and spent well. Because he's already been pouring out his life as a drink offering. For the glory of God and the good of other people for years now. This is how he's been living his life. Poured out, spent as a drink offering for the glory of God and the good of others. See, that, that word in verse 6, poured out, is the Greek word spendo. That means to be spent or used up. 
Some of you, the way you're living your lives, I want to help you, but this is going to be painful for a moment. The way you're living your lives, there's going to be way too much of you left at the end. Because your focus is so much about saving your life, protecting your life, guarding your life, promoting your life, padding your life, instead of losing your life and pouring it out for the glory of God and the good of others, for the glory of God and the good of others. Let me help you here. God never designed us to live holding on to our lives. Don't hear me saying it's not natural. You are born from the moment you suck in air to think about me, 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 and what's happening to me, and is it good for me, and how am I being impacted, and am I going to be okay? Don't hear me saying that's not how we're wired. But that's your sinful wiring. You were made for something greater. We are the only thing in all of creation, not porpoises, not aardvarks, not plants, not rocks, not mountains. We're the only things that are created in his image. We're image bearers. And so we were designed to be like God. God is the greatest giver and lover. But we've been twisted and warped by sin. You were never designed to live holding on to your life. But we got so many people, sadly Christians included, who are so afraid of being spent for the glory of God and the good of others. And let me tell you what happens. Whenever you do that, whenever you live holding on to your life, what did Jesus say? The one who tries to hold on to it ends up losing it. The one who loses his life for my sake finds it. Finds it. You find real life and real joy and real purpose when you start being poured out and spending. But I know it's counterintuitive. It's not what you would think and it's not what our world says. And sadly, it's not what the best-selling Christian books say. I'm so sick of best-selling Christian books taking the world's thinking and just baptizing it with a few Bible verses taken out of context and telling us the same thing. I would love to name a big one, but I'm not going to do it. (laughs) I will. Girl, wash your face. I want to say, girl, read your Bible. There you go. Yeah, wash your face. And when you're done, read your Bible. Now, some of you, you don't like that right now. First service didn't get that, but you got it. Because somebody needed to hear that. Is there any truth in her book? Yes. What makes it worse than just rank heresy is it's mixed with false. It's all about promoting you. Is it good for you? Is it good for me? What about me? What about me? What about me? That is not a biblical message. But we just keep getting more and more. And why do you love it so? Why do you say, oh man, I read that and like, Because your sinful heart wants it to be true. For the same reason that all kinds of other books sell, it resonates with our sinful condition, but it does not mean it's biblical. You were never designed for holding on to your life, promoting you, and trying to get everyone else to orbit around you so that you could be self-fulfilled and actualized and all that you dream to be and whatever you... Whenever you do that, whenever you live holding on to your life, you'll live fearful, guarded, cautious, and you'll have very little joy. All the while wondering why. 
Why? It will always seem to elude you. My follower, I don't have enough followers. My brand is not quite big enough. My friends aren't as good as I wish they were. Just, it'll always feel like it's just a little beyond you. Let me help you. Because you're going after the wrong thing. Joy is never found on the path of fighting hard to promote and hold on to self. Joy is found in losing yourself, pouring yourself out for the glory of God and the good of other people. Is that a radical message? Yes. Is it a biblical message? And is it a freeing message that will get you on a path of joy? Yes. Some of you, the very thing that you're fighting so hard against, losing myself, what about me? What about me? Is the path to the joy that you so desperately want. It's found in being spent. It's found in being poured out, not holding on to your life. So the sooner you start living the way God designed you to live, the sooner you'll start experiencing the joy that you're wanting and that sense of purpose and that sense of, ah, yes, I think I know why I'm here. But now I want you to think about why Paul chooses to describe his death with the word departure. Because that was a Greek word. That word departure is a Greek word that means to unloose something, to untie it, and set it free. It was a Greek word that was most often used in reference to unloosing a ship that has been tied to the dock. So I want you to keep that picture for a minute. And I want you to think, how much has that ship experienced of all that it was created to be and do? Here's this vessel. How much has that ship experienced of all it was created to be and do while it's still tied to the dock? Is it a ship? Yeah. Almost nothing. While it simply bobs and rocks tied to the dock. That's some of you. Almost nothing. How much is that ship seen of all that is out there away from the dock that could be explored and enjoyed? Almost nothing. When you consider the expanse of oceans and places to go. And so here's what God wants us as Christians to understand. It's radically different than the way other people think. And it's radically different than the way we naturally think. Here's what God wants us to understand about death now. Death is not the end. Death is not a tragic loss. And it's not even a life cut short. I know we use that term if someone's younger than we wish, especially a child or a teenager or someone young, not even married yet. I get it. I understand. But folks, the death of any believer, or I would even add young child, who I believe is with the Lord, the death of any believer is never a life cut short. It's a life set free sooner to be and experience all it was created to be. Do you realize we will be most fulfilled and we will experience most what we're designed to do in the next life, not this one. 
This one, we're tied to the dock, bobbing and weaving. The dock of this broken, burdensome, sin-cursed world. And you have this sense, I hope you do, because I do. I think I was made for more. I think I was made for more. I long for greater beauty. I see some beauty, but what about, I, I, I get glimpses and just moments and taste of, and I feel like there's something more. Let me help you. There is. You were made for more. And as long as you're in this life, this finite, broken, burdensome, sin-cursed world, you are tied to the dock. So change your thinking. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. For those of us, oh, for those of us left standing on the dock, when the ship of our loved one sets sail through death, it is heart-wrenching. So don't, don't take the approach of, oh, so if we understood this, we should just say, praise the Lord. We're, 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 we're grieving. It is our loss. All the hopes and dreams of what we would see or continue, the, the things that person would miss out on, but you've got to understand, it is our loss. And it is not wrong to grieve. Paul said, I want you to grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no Hope your loved one, regardless of their age, when their ship was unloosed from the dock, would not come back if they could. Not even for your graduation party. Not for so-and-so's wedding. Not for Christmas like we were all together. They wouldn't. They couldn't. It is our loss. But oh, how it helps when you realize it's never a life cut short. It's never a tragic loss. They've been unloosed and set free to sail into a realm. Oh, listen. A realm of incomprehensible, mind-blowing wonder and glory and beauty and justice and truth and peace and perfection that has no end. Oh, when I hear people, and they're usually young people, won't we be bored in heaven? No, oh, shut up. You and your computer games and endless Netflix. No, we won't be bored in heaven. You are ignorant. Three syllables there. You haven't read your Bible. We're not going to just float in some ethereal mist like I'm chubby, you're chubby, and I've got a harp. I think I'm bored. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there will be a new heaven and earth. Everything we have here, minus sin, with the curse lifted. Blues will be bluer. Everything will be glorious. You will experience everything that we delight in here, minus sin. Oh, that's what, plus, the very presence of the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful being in the world. No more veil. No more we see through a glass darkly. Face to face with our resurrected Savior. And here's a phrase that will just echo through the heavenlies for eternity. Oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. I mean, we, we have moments of that, sadly, in this world that can't compare. You know, you're looking at a new house and you're like, oh, sunken den. Oh, patio. You know, as you're walking around, 
Oh, but there's more. I didn't intend. Oh, fenced in backyard. You guys, imagine for eternity this phrase continuing to spill off our lips. Oh, but there's more. You know, you're hiking through the Red River Gorge. You think you've seen the most beautiful spot yet, and you keep on going, and you're like, oh, no, this stops it. Oh, oh, that will be heaven. You think you've seen all the goodness, but there's more. Beauty, but there's more. Wisdom, but there's more. We can't even grasp that. Because he is infinite, it will never come to an end. There will not be boredom. Oh, but there's more. That's what awaits every believer. To be unloosed from this sin-cursed, burdensome, broken, finite dock of this life. We got to change what we think and feel about death. Because when you do, it changes how you live life. Because you don't live as fearful. You don't live holding on. You don't live dreading. You live radically different. I can't, I can't talk this way about death without thinking of C.S. Lewis. There are a few people who capture this well and get what I'm talking about because they know their Bibles. He's one of them. And so in his Narnia book series, at the end of the last book, he knows what I'm talking about. And here's how he concludes the final book. Listen to what he says. After all the main characters have died, you'd think, oh. He says this. All their life, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what's coming. Think how often we in this life think it was the past that was better. Oh, do you remember? Oh, do you remember? It'll never be that way again. Every chapter is better than the one before. That's what's coming. Which is why the Apostle Paul himself penned some of the most famous words about death that have ever been written that usually only get read at Easter, but they're true every day of the year. So I want you to see it today. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Beginning in verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be, say it, changed. Oh, Every human being, because we're created in the image of God, knows something's wrong, tragically wrong. You don't even have to be a Christian to wish there was change. Think about how many politicians ride that platform of change. They promise change. Change, hope. Change, hope. Change, hope. I don't know if you've noticed. I feel like it doesn't matter who gets elected. Not much changes, and I don't feel more hopeful. Don't hear me saying don't vote. Vote. 
But the change that you so long for will never be produced by any human being or political party. And the hope that we need most has to be fastened in someone outside of this world. And his name's Jesus. Real change. Real hope. is coming. It's coming. We shall be changed. Verse 53. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. And the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death where is your victory? Oh death where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Where is it found? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice he doesn't stop there. Because glorious truths that change what you think about death were designed to change how you live long before you die. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Don't we do tons of stuff that you find yourself saying, did that matter? Did that make a difference? Did I waste my time? Have I wasted my life on that? Whenever, see, I believe abounding in the work of the Lord is just another way of talking about poured out as a drink offering. Get in on what God is doing. Start living for what matters most. And when you have new thinking and feelings about death, it changes how you live now. You're able to endure. You'll be able to be steadfast. You're able to have a new perspective of what matters most. Steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen. That day that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, on that day, is a day that we're all going to face. And let me help you here. No one will ever stand on that day before the Lord and wish they had held on to their life more. Why did I give so much? Why did I spend so much? Why did I sacrifice? Why did I... mm -mm. You'll just wish you'd given more. You'd wish you'd been more poured out. There are going to be millions of people standing on that day who will for the first time have the perspective that they always should have had and will see the stuff of this world as just trivial, plastic, Happy Meal McDonald's toys that they clung to and grabbed after and built their world around. And there will be a horrific regret. Why did I live holding on to my life and the stuff of this world? So now let me tell you something. Why not start living now like you'll wish you'd lived then? It's not too late to make a course correction. What are you doing? What are you living for? Are you being spent and poured out for the glory of God and the good of others? Or are you living, holding on to your life, protecting your life, promoting your life, so fearful of being on the losing end? Change now. 
Change now. Look at verse 55 again. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul is actually taunting the very thing that humans fear most. And saying, death, give me your best shot. Bring it. Bring it. Because when you take me, you can't diminish me. You'll only enhance me and transport me to the place I long to be most in the presence of the one I love most. That causes you to take risks. That allows you to lean into opportunities. That allows you to get outside of your comfort zone when you think, what is the worst thing that could happen? I could die. And be ushered into this incredible wonder, glory, beauty, perfection forever. Bring it, death. I'm not saying just drive into a concrete wall. I'm just saying, take some risks. Take some risks. Where you'd think, I don't know, what about me? What about me? What about me? We're going to talk some more about you. Because there's another point, another decision you got to make that's going to determine whether you finish well. Number two, you will have to embrace the struggle and the fight of the normal Christian life. Look at what I'm talking about in 2 Timothy 4. Get back there, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That word fight in the Greek right there in verse 7 is the word agon. What do you think we get from the word agon? Agony. It was a word that used, was used most often in a wrestling match that entails great struggle, effort, and sweat. I have agonized the good Fight. And it's worth noting here, this is the Apostle Paul, not some newbie, right? Not some brand new Christian or someone that wasn't grounded in the word, someone that didn't really understand all that we have as a Christian now. Why are you talking about a big struggle, Paul? Why haven't you found the zone, my friend? This is the Apostle Paul at the end of his Christian life, summarizing it this way. Even though he had, sometimes we think, but if I got caught up in the heavenlies and had some special visions and revelations from the Lord, that would change how I wouldn't have to struggle. He's the guy. He was swept up in the heavenlies. He had things revealed to him that he says, I can't even talk about. And yet his Christian life continued to be comprised of must put forth effort by God's grace and his spirit in you to fight the good fight. In other words, Paul is saying there is no secret or key to the Christian life that puts you in a struggle-free zone where you just soar with Jesus and automatically do all the right things in Christian. I mean, so many of you often aren't you guilty of thinking, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? Why is this so hard? Why is this hard? I bet everybody else doesn't struggle like I do. Stop it. There is no struggle-free zone. There is no secret to soaring. It sells books. If I'd put the word key or secret in the title of my book, it would have sold a lot more. (laughs) My book's about a struggle with your own sinful heart that wants to rule you and get you to worship other things. And so I get one stars on Amazon by people who say, another book to make you feel bad about yourself. Thank you very much. 
I don't want to make you feel bad about yourself. I want you to know yourself so that you can fight against yourself and get to the joy and freedom and purpose that you want. But there is no zone. There is no struggle-free place. And there is no secret. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished. He's talking at the end of his life after glorious visions about a fight and about a rigorous race. Not a sprint, but a marathon. And don't make a mistake here. Paul's not talking about, be careful. Paul is not talking about the general struggle that every human being feels and is aware of in a fallen, broken world. That causes people to create bumper stickers that you see that say things like, Life is hard, then you die. Oh, thank you on Monday morning, that's helpful. But we feel it, right? You don't have to be a Christian to think, life is hard. Life is hard. That's not what he's talking about. That. Paul is talking about how the Christian life. You ever hear people say, I feel like my life just got harder after I became a Christian. You know why? For the first time, you know of things that you should fight against that you were giving into before. Life only got hard after you became a Christian because before you were unaware of this and you just gave in and gave in and gave in and you were a slave to sin. He's talking about that deliberate struggle that only Christians know about because unbelievers aren't aware of it and don't know that they should struggle against it. They don't go to war against their own fleshly desires or their own bloated ego that makes it all about them. But God has called us to. You say, well, bummer then. If it's still going to be that hard, what, what, what's the difference? What do Christians have that they don't have? Here we go. You do now have a new power you never had before. By the resurrected Jesus Christ living in you to say no to these fleshly. Some of you think, oh, I can't say no. I have to. That's who I am. No. If you're a believer, you do not. You have a new power you never had before to say no to your own selfish desires and your own bloated ego. But you will have to be the one to say no and to say no for a lifetime. It's not like, oh, I've been walking with the Lord so many decades now. Now I don't have to fight. No, that's a great way to end like David and commit adultery in your 50s. Right? At no point in my life can I say, I've been a pastor for 35 years now. I don't have to fight. That's a great way to end in shipwreck. That's a great way to be the next Demas. You will need to fight by God's grace and fight for a lifetime. Paul said, I've fought the good fight all the way to the end. I finished the race, the race, the race. And while Paul simply mentions the struggle here, In 2 Timothy, he just says, I fought the good fight. He unpacks it some more in 1 Corinthians 9. When he says this, every athlete exercises self-control in how many things? All things. All things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who's beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Paul is using an athletic training metaphor. 
Because athletes who want to finish well and want to excel, want to be in that category that's set apart from the average, they know something. They know something that they will have to say no to a lot of their natural impulses. What am I talking about? And that word right there for self-control is the Greek word egokratia, ego control. Oh, get self under control, my friend. They know that they will have to say no to a lot of what seems natural. All I want is they'll have to, whether it's skipping desserts, right? Eliminating alcohol, increasing their water intake, putting themselves in bed early. The athletes who win, who excel, who finish well, have learned, oh, listen to me, They've learned that the biggest, biggest, strongest struggle happens off the field before they ever encounter an opponent or another skilled athlete. A struggle with themselves to say no, to do what is necessary to excel and finish. Well, the most agonizing struggle happens before you ever step onto the field, get on the track, get on the court. I love football. Think about how many times you'll hear an interview and and the commentators will say something like, oh my goodness, this tight end, he really got it together, lost 35 pounds, really hit the weights, look how much quicker and agile and whatever. It cost him something to take it to another level. He had to discipline himself. She had to discipline himself herself and do what they did not naturally feel like doing or want to do. And Paul says they do it for a perishable wreath, a ribbon, a plaque, a trophy. We do it to stand before the one who created us on that day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. But you will no less than that earthly athlete have to come to grips with the fact that you must say no to your natural fleshly impulses and desires and your bloated ego that thinks it's all about you. And I would love to tell you, well, wait a minute, I became a Christian, Brad. I put my trust in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, this sinful natural impulse and this ego is not eradicated. It's a fight to the end. You can read the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, right? That's a glorious book that talks about the power we have. We've been baptized with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We've been... And then he says, oh my goodness, the good I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I'll say I'll never do, do, I I keep doing that. He confesses there's this ongoing struggle. But then chapter 8, he uses the word Holy Spirit like 13 times. You put to death the deeds of the flesh by his spirit working in you. But who has to do it? You. You. Pastor can't do it for you. Small group can't do it for you. You. He's given you what you need to do it. But you have to do it. And you have to do it for a lifetime. Self-control. Ego-control. And those who have been most insightful about us and have had the best shepherding heart to help people, really help people, Get free and live joyfully. Have understood this for centuries. This is not a new thought. Unfortunately, it's not talked about a lot today because 
Christianity has aligned itself mostly with the culture and just produced books that sound a lot like the culture. Those who know most about God's word and the condition of our hearts have been talking about this for centuries. This is not a new thing. Martin Luther. Martin Luther described this problem that Paul's putting his finger on with the Latin phrase, incurvus in se, curved in on itself. He's saying, as I, as I live with me, he would have students live with him all the time. He was a very personable guy. He began to learn about people saying, I see believers that are still curved in on themselves. I find myself still wanting to curve in on myself. In his lectures in the book of Romans, he said this, Our nature by the corruption of the first sin is so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, it even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. It also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. I'll use God and I'll use other people to still basically do what I want, get what I want, if it's good for me. That's our sinful nature that's still very much alive that you'll have to fight against. Jonathan Edwards wrote something very similar when he said, After the fall or sin... The mind of man shrank from its original greatness. God made us in his image with a greatness that is like him. It shrank from its original greatness before man's soul was under the noble principle of divine love. Love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Love, biblical God love, is giving for the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. That's how he designed us, to have that God is love and he created us in his image. We had an expansiveness and an ability to think of others and prefer others and comprehend what they might feel and think and want. All that was lost in sin, whereby, as it were, we were enlarged to the comprehension of all our fellow creatures. But as soon as we sinned, all this excellent largeness of soul was gone and he shrank into a little point circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of others and now wholly governed by narrow and selfish principles. That's what happened to us in the garden. Remember immediately? Adam, who was longing for a soulmate, for a compliment, for a longing. And when God brought him the woman, he said, Oh, woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Two chapters later, after sin, this woman you gave me. She had a name two chapters ago. That's how ugly sin is. And we've been in it since then. And you'll have to fight against it. The largeness of soul, the love. We are by nature born, shrunk down with very narrow, selfish concerns of just us, us, us. And if you say you don't feel like, you said, that just sounds like a lot of work, Brad. I'm, I'm not interested. Let me tell you what's going to happen if you don't fight against this Selfish, natural, sinful impulse. You say you don't want to fight against it? Here's what's going to happen to you oh, and the people closest to you. Especially other people, but especially those closest to you. You will be filled more and more and more. When you don't fight against this and you just go with it. You'll be filled more and more and more with self-pity. 
And you'll find yourself defending yourself internally and verbally, constantly defending yourself. And you will always be thinking, no one understands me. Everyone's against me. No one understands me. Everyone's against me. As your twisted little world shrinks in on itself, you will become sullen, angry, moody, and hypersensitive to any criticism that comes your way. Very touchy and even perhaps violent. And, and you listen to people sometimes. It's like all these people that have failed them. Just everyone's failed them. Everyone's failed them. What they actually mean is they didn't do for me all I expected. They didn't orbit around me. They didn't serve me. And God forbid they actually tried to contradict me sometimes. Don't contradict me. Just serve me. We'll have a great marriage as soon as you begin to orbit around me. I am the sun. You are Pluto. Let's get this straight. Just orbit. Orbit. That's not what God designed. And you wonder why you're so angry and frustrated, filled with self-pity. It's everybody else's fault. What is wrong? What is wrong? What is wrong? Let me help you. You are wrong. You have become entrenched in a condition that was not your original design, and you don't see it. And the way out is to actually say no to self. No to self. No to self. Because as you give in and you keep turning in and twisting inward, you'll begin to lose all touch with reality. You'll have your own reality. You'll just see people differently. And you'll become almost impossible to live with. How do I know that? I do biblical counseling. I sit with people. And they're so entrenched in all they want. And so we're having like epic counseling failures after failure after failure that I did not see 25 years ago. I've got a file cabinet full of folders of people that got help. There was a breakthrough and we're just not seeing it like we used to. People are coming in more. And I think it's because this culture tells you self, 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 self. From the moment you're raised, it's all about you're a princess. He's a prince. You're a princess. And the family orbits around you and your sports. And then they both get married and they wonder why it's a disaster. It's been you, you. What do you want to eat? Which cup do you want? What do you want to wear? This jacket, that jacket. Ah. And all of a sudden the spouse isn't serving them like their mother served them. Mamas, one of the best things you could do is not serve your son hand and foot like he's a prince. Get him ready for a wife. It's awful when a boy marries someone and all you did was, I'll fix your sandwich. No, go fix your sandwich. You're 19. You can do it. And start doing your own laundry and separate the whites and the darks. Don't put it all in there at once and run my washer. I digress. First service didn't get any of that. But this is what we're seeing. And there they are. And each just thinks, if she, she needs to change, tell her what she needs. He needs to change. She needs to change. He, you both need to change. And we're just not getting traction because there's such a hardness and entrenched position of, I am so afraid of losing. And I, my whole life is about holding on to my life. We were designed for something radically different. Christian philosopher Dr. Jeff Myers puts a contemporary spin on the same thought that Edwards and Luther are bringing us when he says this. Listen, as we pursue everything for our own sakes, our perception of reality grows ever more at odds with what actually exists. 
We imagine ourselves to be free and beautiful, but in actuality, we grow more hunched, pinched, and sickly each passing day. Try as we might to ignore the effects of sin in our lives, reality has a way of knocking on the back door when we refuse to meet it in the front. Sin, very insightful here, sin reaches its full measure in blame. When we see sin as something others do to us, when we judge ourselves by our own good intentions and impute bad motives to others, when we treat as evil that which prevents us from getting our way, we are witnessing the metastasizing of sin in our lives. I hope you realize if you leave this alone and say, I don't want to deal with it, it will not stay. It grows like cancer. Sin grows it grabs like kudzu it just creeps further and further and further and further into your heart and life suffocating any capacity to love and think of someone else to finish well requires a lifetime of putting to death by god's spirit the natural selfish sinful impulses and bloated ego that would call you to make it all about you. Quickly, a third point. One of the reasons Paul finished well, you'll have to remember that we are dispensable. But the gospel is unstoppable. We keep getting those things turned around. We doubt what the gospel can do and we overestimate what we can do, what we try to do. What did he say we can do? Apart from me, you can do. I'm the vine, you're the branch. It's like, oh, we are dispensable. The gospel is unstoppable. And so I don't know about you. I think he's bringing home this point to us in the way he ends Acts. Did you find it odd the way the book of Acts ended? For six long chapters, we've been trying to get Paul to Rome to plead before Caesar and have a trial, and he doesn't even tell us how it ended. Like, tell us, how'd that go? What happened? Why did it end so abruptly? When Paul has six or seven years of his life left, why not? I think it's intentional, you guys. Luke intentionally ends the book this way. Instead of making the book of Acts a complete biography and finished work about the finished life of Paul, he makes it all about the unfinished work of the gospel. Because the book of Acts is not about Paul or any other human being. It's about the power of the gospel and the proclamation of it to the ends of the earth. You, we got to go back and remember, how did our book start? What did Jesus say to his disciples? Paul, Peter, James, John, and now us. Acts 1.8, you're going to have the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the... The gospel made it to Rome that was the epicenter of the Roman Empire. But it was not the ends of the earth. And so we're not done yet. We're not done yet. In essence, he ends the book in a way so that we realize, you know what we got right now? Acts continued. Acts continued. It's not about Paul or Peter or James or John. It's now... Us, same gospel, same Holy Spirit, same great commission, 
to take this message to the ends of the earth. We're living it now. As I wrap it up, I want you to look at verse 21 again. Where Paul says, do your best to come before winter. What's he talking about? Paul knew, you guys. Young Timothy is the pastor of the first church in Ephesus. Ephesus is 900 miles from Rome. And it was a three to four month journey by sea. And you can't do it in winter with storms and shipwrecks. It's early spring. So he's saying, Timothy, come. Leave now. Come before winter. Come before it's too late. As I've been preaching, what has the Holy Spirit been pressing on you? Not my words, but what what began to stab you? What began to prick you? What began, oh, listen to me. Respond. Come before winter. Come before it's too late. If you're here and you're not a Christian, come to Christ. Put your trust in Christ. Experience being set free from our greatest fear, death, and experience a new power in your life to say no to those fleshly. You keep wondering, I I give in, I give in, I give in, and I go for it, and I just need more. I just need more. It always leaves me, and yes, it will. What you're actually looking for is the power to say no and to no longer be a slave to your fleshly desires and to live with a freedom and a joy and a purpose that's bigger. Come today. Don't wait. Don't delay. And Christians, this would be a great time for a a self-evaluation. Our world has been so noisy lately. Oh, my goodness. It's this, that, and the other. Let me tell you something more important. How you finish and how you're left standing before the God of the universe. It's not the economy. It's not politics. It's not any other issue right now that's the most important issue. Are you just drifting? And do not deceive yourself in thinking you can make a lifetime of easy, selfish, sinful decisions and then finish well. You won't. You will keep turning inward and twisting into something very ugly, getting more and more unhappy with everyone around you. And perhaps God. What needs to change? Where do you need to fight? And do you need to say, God, I've been holding on to my life for dear life. I'm scared. But I want to begin to live poured out as a drink offering. I know, listen to me. I know your flesh right now is saying, don't listen to him. That is ridiculous. The joy you've been looking for, the peace and the freedom you've been looking for, the sense of purpose you've been looking for, it's found as you begin to live this way. Poured out, spent. I don't want to get to the end of my life. I tell Vicky sometimes, I'm way older than I think I would. I, I'm, I'm falling apart because of ministry. Not complaining, but it's taken a toll on me. But there's no other way I'd rather live. I don't want to live holding on to my life. Yes, I go to the gym. But beyond that, and I drink lots of water. But it's like, I want to live spent. I don't want to end with a whole lot of me left. For what? For what? 
Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the examples you give us of a Demas who departed because he loved this world. And a Paul who said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Oh God, would you grant us by your grace to be a room full of men and women who can say the same, not perfect, but we fought, we finished, we kept the faith. We were abounding in the work of the Lord. We lived, poured out for your glory and the good of other people. In Jesus' name, amen.